You take your Bibles, please, and turn to Philippians and chapter 3. We'll read the chapter in its entirety, and our focus will be on the last two verses. Philippians chapter 3, let's hear the inspired and infallible word of God. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, 
so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I want us to reflect in due course on the last two verses of chapter 3. You may remember these words in Isaiah chapter 40. Taken as I read them, they sound pretty pessimistic. There, Isaiah says, All flesh is grass, and all the loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The passage that was read earlier, Job chapter 14, Job also sounds pretty pessimistic about life and the possibility of life after death. Things are quite shady in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they become very, very clear. If you have engaged in a conversation with someone about the possibility of life after death, there are some people who will tell you, no, when you're dead, that's it, finished. You have no existence. They are the pessimists. Then there are those who are more optimistic. Oh, they say, surely there must be something after this life. When a celebrity dies, people often talk about a golfer's heaven or a footballer's heaven or whatever it is. I mean, there's no basis for saying any of those things, but people have an optimism and a hope that there is, there is something beyond this life. There are fewer and fewer people in our nation who actually identify as religious and as believing in God. God is not important in their lives. Strangely enough, it is the older generation, my generation, that is leaning more in that direction. The younger generation, apparently, according to statistics, are more optimistic what the foundation is, I do not know. But they are apparently more optimistic. When we turn to the scriptures, we're not dealing with pessimists. We're not dealing with optimists. We're dealing with men who speak with conviction. And when I talk about conviction, I mean convinced that things, there are certain things which are absolutely true that you can rely upon entirely. You remember Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He summarized his gospel. That Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. He was writing about things that he was absolutely convinced about. This is the heart of the gospel. Take away the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you have nothing. Nothing at all. And no hope with regard to the future. 
But when Paul comes and writes to the Philippians, notice the same kind of strong conviction. He is persuaded these things are so. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Do you share those convictions? If you're a real Christian, you certainly ought to share those convictions. But even real Christians have their doubts and sometimes their anxieties about death and what lies beyond death. Satan loves to disturb our peace and he will sow seeds of doubt into our minds. So we need to go back to the scriptures and see what the scriptures teach us. So I pray that by the Holy Spirit tonight we will come away with three very clear convictions in our hearts and minds that are set out here in this passage. Paul is a man whose mind and heart is not set upon earthly things, but on Christ and on heaven, and that is very clear in verses 20 and 21. There is, first of all, a conviction, a strong, true conviction as to where a Christian belongs. Where do you really belong? Our citizenship is in heaven. That's stated plainly. Someone who is not a believer cannot say those things. They're set upon their mind and heart, is set upon earthly things. That's all there is, or all there seems to be. Anything else is but a pipe dream. But Paul says, no, our citizenship is at this present time. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. In that sense, a Christian already has one foot in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. There's part of us, in a sense, there in anticipation, but that's, that's where we belong. We don't belong here any longer. This is not our permanent home. Heaven is our permanent home, and our citizenship there. It's a present reality. It's a prized possession. It's the right and the privilege that belongs to every one who trusts in Jesus Christ. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used, citizenship. Why does Paul use it when he writes to the Philippians? Well, every person born in Philippi was a Roman citizen. That was, it was, Philippi was a Roman colony. Living in Philippi was like living in Rome itself. It was governed as if they were living on Italian soil. Everything in Philippi reflected Rome. This is a Roman colony. This is a Roman city. Paul is saying, well, you understand 
what it means to be a Roman citizen, but I'm telling you now, your citizenship is in heaven. In heaven, where Jesus sits at the right hand of God and governs everything in this world. Paul is lifting up their heads and their hearts and saying, look, realize who you are. You are citizens of heaven. You've been made to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places, to use language he uses in Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. That is where Christ has put you. That is what Christ has done. He has transformed your whole outlook, your whole dimensions now are different you don't see yourself simply as men and women who are living here on this earth you are but your citizenship is not here it is in heaven now how aware of you of that dimension in your lives your lives are busy my life is busy even though i'm retired there are lots of things i have to do which are very much to do with this life in this world I have to do them. You have to do them. But our citizenship is not here. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul writes to the Colossians and exhorts them, seek those things which are above. Set your minds on the things above, your affections, your love, your joy, your hopes. Heaven is where you belong. This Apostle Paul, he was a former Pharisee. But he had abandoned salvation by works. He said, according to uh, the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. I was zealous for the law. But my salvation does not depend upon my keeping of the law. Now I've been transformed. Now I've been changed. I've been found in Christ. And he says then in verse 12, I, not that I've already attained, I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You see, there is a man who's conscious of his citizenship being in heaven. And verse 14 again, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How different those who remain indifferent to the cross of Jesus Christ and the salvation which he has purchased for us. Paul, as good as weeps, over those whose end will be destruction. They're enemies of the cross of Christ, he says in the verse previous to our text. Now some of you here this evening may be professing Christians, but you're unsure about the future. A little confused, perhaps. I used to find when I was a pastor here, in talking to other members of the church, when I visited them, pastoral visit, I would ask them, what are you most afraid of? And some of them would answer, 
They were afraid of the future. They were afraid of death. They were afraid they might not run the race and attain to heaven. And then I discovered that some of them were unsure what happened when a saint dies. Paul is not uncertain about these things. Look, he says, you are already, you've already got one foot in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. That's what Christ has made you. You're on your way, as it were. And it is Christ who has drawn you. And Christ is far stronger than you are. And he is able to save you and bring you to that point where you will enjoy your citizenship in all its fullness and in all its glory. Sometimes when you talk to someone who's not a Christian, it might be a relative, it might be a friend, it might be someone who's a complete stranger to you, but there you are, you're talking about the Christian faith. And they say, that's presumption. You have a hope of heaven and of glory. That's utter presumption. How dare you, some would even say. How can you say such a thing? Well, if you believe the Bible and if you believe the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he died on that cross for your sins and he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, then you know it. You know this is the truth. So you can say with the Apostle Paul, yes, I know my citizenship is in heaven. That is where I belong. That is the first conviction the Apostle Paul has and conveys to these Philippians. But there's another conviction here. A second conviction, strong, true, the conviction that the Saviour is coming. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which, from heaven, we also eagerly wait for who? For the Saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ. Did he promise that he would come again? Did he promise that he would return for his people? Paul is absolutely persuaded that he is coming. And he said it's just not a bit of wishful thinking. We eagerly wait. Now if you eagerly wait you're expecting something. You're expecting this to happen. And this is not just a conviction then in his mind, it bubbles over into eagerness, into anticipation, eager waiting, a longing, an expectation, a patience, because he knows he will come. And that ought to characterize every Christian. Christ will come as the Savior. Remember those words? of the angel to Joseph you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins that is his name Jesus means savior deliverer he will come then and he will complete the work of salvation that he has begun Earlier on in Philippians, you'll read that God will bring to completion the work that he has begun in the day of Jesus Christ. We're looking then to a person 
who will return in glory. We're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking to him to come and complete the work that he has begun in you. He has saved you and forgiven you. He has accounted you righteous in the sight of his Father. But the work is far from done. The work of salvation has yet to be completed. And he will come and complete it. God set his love upon us in Christ before the foundation of this world. And then in time he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to atone for our sins, to secure our salvation. And then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then he worked something quite remarkable. He changed us. In your lifetime, Christ came by his word and by his spirit and called you into fellowship with him through the preaching of the word of God. And you were actually justified. You were forgiven. You were accounted righteous. You were adopted into the family of God. You were sealed with the Spirit until the day of your redemption. The Spirit being the promised guarantee of our inheritance. He will come to redeem all his people and to deliver them from death. This work of Jesus Christ to say is not that then being completed but we don't throw up our hands and say well nothing's really happening no our lives should be marked by an eager waiting an eager anticipation that is the next big thing in your life if you are a Christian it's the return of Jesus Christ you may die before he returns that will not separate you from Christ. We are awaiting his return. That is as much a fact as his death and resurrection all those years ago, 2,000 years ago. He will come again. That's the revealed truth of Scripture. And he will come as your Savior. He knows you by name, in person. You're not a stranger to him. He laid down his life for you. He knows, like a shepherd knows, every name of all his sheep. <clears throat> this is a very personal thing. But Paul is waiting. And he says, we also eagerly wait for him. You remember how the gospel came to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the gospel came to them in the power of the Holy Spirit and they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he, God, raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath 
to come. There is no wrath, there is no condemnation to come for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation. Christ, by his love, has removed our guilt, removed the wrath of God, covered our sin. Sometimes Satan will come and he will hammer us and tell us, you're such a sinner. You're such a sinner. You really think that Christ has forgiven you? You really think that you have a place in heaven? But remember, he's a liar. He's a murderer from the very beginning. You can't trust him. As we say, further you can throw him. But we can trust our Saviour. His words are absolutely true. So we are then to be marked by eager anticipation, longing, not for our death, but longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Death is not the end of our salvation. We're not looking and waiting for our death. When we die, yes, as Paul says again to the Philippians, to depart is, is better, to be with Christ. But our body, where's our body? It's laid in the tomb, it returns to dust. But our Lord, and in a moment we'll see that our Lord Jesus Christ is the saviour not only of our spirits but our soul, our bodies also. So death is not the goal that we're looking for. We're looking beyond that. We're looking to the return of Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Earlier on this morning we read, right at the beginning of our service, from 1 John chapter 3, and verses 1 two and three and it says in that verse those verses when he appears we shall be like him when he returns we shall be like him and in 1 corinthians 15 the same message again and again we shall be changed flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven christ the savior needs to give us a new body that is fit for living in the new heavens and the new earth. So are you marked by that eager longing? Waiting patiently, groaning in anticipation, longing for the coming of Christ. If you're not marked by that, then you must ask yourselves, why not? Why not? Are you living with two feet firmly planted in this world? And your horizons are no bigger than what you see around you with your own physical eyes. Taken up with your own interests, your own desires. If you were to die today, what would become of you? Would you go to be with Christ? Which Paul says is much better. 
Well, if your heart is not set upon Christ now, there is no prospect of heaven. Heaven is for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. He came into this world to save sinners. That is a faithful saying, says the Apostle Paul. You must ask yourselves then, why did Jesus die on that cross? Why did he shed his blood? The scripture tells us the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Like sheep we've gone astray, everyone turning to his own way. Are you still that lost sheep? Or has the shepherd come to you and drawn you to himself? Because he's the only way to heaven. There's no other way. There's no other prospect. No one else can forgive you. No one else can save you from your sins. Cast yourself upon him. And he will save you. That's his promise. But there is a third and final conviction here. I've already hinted at it. Already mentioned it. The third true and strong conviction is that Christ will totally change your body your body verse 21 again who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body what kind of body does jesus now have he's been raised from the dead he has a glorious body it will never perish his body never saw corruption but when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and totally changes and transforms our lowly body to conform us to his glorious body, that will be the completion of our Saviour's work for us and in us. When you die, your body returns to the dust. Your spirit goes to be with Christ. But body and spirit, body and soul, are separated at death. But your body is not something that Jesus Christ then forgets about and says, that's of no value, that's of no interest to me. Your body is a vital part of you. You are made and formed in your body. By God and Jesus does not abandon your body and leave you in dust in the ground you are joined still to Christ I can't explain that I can declare it to you but you are still united to Christ in soul in spirit and in your body and one day body and soul will be reunited joined together and you will have a glorious body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Saviour is the Saviour of our bodies and he will transform us. A lowly body, it's weak, it's mortal, it's corruptible, it's subject still to sin, death and physical decay. But the Saviour 
has this glorious body and all who trust in him will also have a glorious body. When Peter first began to preach on the day of Pentecost, he told the crowd there, you all know about King David. Well, David was dead and buried. And then he went on to talk about Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. His soul was not left in the realm of death. His flesh, his body did not see corruption. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits. That means he's the first one of the harvest. That's what first fruits are. The first bit of the harvest. There's a big harvest coming. Made up of all who trust in Jesus Christ. And he will raise all of them. Every single one of them. From the dead. We know. We've said already. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You need to be transformed. And who's going to do that? It is Christ. You see, when God sends his son Jesus Christ as the saviour, he comes as the saviour of the whole person. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them in his own likeness, his own image. He made Adam out of the dust of the ground. Eve was formed from the rib of Adam. And because of sin, that Adam and Eve committed, they would return to dust. But that is not the end. It's only the beginning of a glorious transformation that will take place. He will give you a new body that's fit for purpose to live in the new heavens and the new earth. But you might say, how is that going to happen? I don't have the power to do that. Well, our text tells us, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself, Christ is able to do what sin did. He will undo that completely. He will undo the effects of sin he will destroy death and to show his power, he will give you a new resurrection body. He is able. Those are the key words in that latter part of verse 21. He is able. It's according to the working by which he is able to do all things to himself. Everything in this vast universe belongs to Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. He's been exalted. He is over all the principalities and powers. And he is over his people. He is over his church. Over those for whom he died. Whom he loves. And on their behalf he is going to work in such a way that every true believer in Christ 
will have a new body and we shall live with Christ forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the supernatural power of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. It's effective. It transforms all who have trusted in him. You remember in Philippians chapter 2, and verses 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the kind of power that he has. He will be recognized. But who will recognize him above all else? It will be his people who have been transformed and be made like him with a glorious body. Our Saviour has a power beyond our grasp, and it is well because he's our only hope. Resurrection power. Can you imagine it? No, you can't. I can't. Free from sin, free from sickness, disease, death. This is what we're familiar with, isn't it, in this life? But those things will be strange. They will, they will not be part of heaven. They will not be part of the new heavens and the new earth. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. Tears will be no more. We shall enter into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 8, he speaks expressly there in verse 23 of the redemption of the body. Romans 8, 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And the Spirit of God testifies to these things. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for what? Our adoption, the redemption of the body. That will be the day. The creation has been waiting for. Someone put it, the words in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation is, is standing on tiptoe in anticipation of the coming of Christ and this whole new dimension, the redemption of the body. We have all the more reason then to glory in Jesus Christ. Here is the power of the gospel. Here is the word of God that transforms our lives. We read at the beginning, Isaiah chapter 40, all flesh is as grass, like the flower of the field, it fades. But you notice, remember the last phrase we read? The word of the Lord stands forever. And our Lord Jesus Christ is forever. His word stands forever. These are his promises. These are the foundation of our hope, our convictions, those convictions which are shaped by the gospel, those convictions which are founded upon the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without those things, we are without God and without hope in this world. There's nothing. If Jesus Christ is not our Savior, there's nothing. There is nothing to hope for. There is only condemnation and hell. Hell, the very opposite of heaven, where there will be no blessing. God will be there, but in judgment. 
not in blessing, not in salvation. Hell is the worst place that we can ever conceive, a place of outer darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ described it. But here you see, he's delivered us. He delivers us from sin, from death, from bondage to Satan, and from the condemnation that would otherwise await us in heaven. Our faith and our hope, therefore, is in Christ. Do you have these threefold, this threefold conviction that heaven is where you belong, that your Saviour is coming again, and when he comes again, he will complete your salvation, transform you and your body. Such convictions only grow out of the Scriptures. Such convictions are only produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who is pleased to take the things of Christ, show them to us, make them known to us, open our minds and our hearts to believe these things. Do you have that joy and that peace that flows from having those convictions? There's nothing that I've ever found in this world that can compare with this. The world makes its promises, but they are false. What can the world give you? What can Christ give you? That's the question. John Newton wrote about solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. Are they part of your joy, your treasure? It's your treasure in heaven, in Christ. You long for his coming. It is no wonder that the Apostle Paul then says, My beloved, therefore, my long-for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast with these convictions, because they are true. Because Christ is true. His word stands forever. He is coming. He is our saviour. And all our hope and trust is in him and in him alone. Blessed be his name. Amen.